to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. chapter 7, but to begin, I actually want you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 2 for just a moment. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and then we'll go to our passage of Scripture in chapter 7. But first, go to chapter 2, as we just kind of want to get ourselves what's going on here at the church of Corinth. This is the second letter uh, to, the Corinth, to the church of Corinth that has been preserved for us. There's a total of four. But the Holy Spirit has only preserved two of them for us. And in chapter 2, 1 through 4, I just want to give you right again the mind of Paul and what's going on here. As you can remember, there is some conflict going on with the church of Corinth and Paul. Paul says, For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. So with that, you can remember that Paul had visited Corinth for a short time and it was very painful. There was some conflict going on and it was very painful and he had to leave he goes for if i cause you pain who is there to make me glad but the one whom i pained and i wrote as i did so that when i came i might not suffer pain from those who have made me rejoice for i felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all for i wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Father, just be with us as we study your word this morning. Uh, Do give me clear words. Lord, help my stammering tongue. Let me speak words that are edifying. Lord, I pray that your spirit now will be released so that he could take the words and he will plant them in good fertile soil, that they'll be planted deep, they'll be watered, They'll be grow and increase a hundredfold. We ask this in your name. Amen. The relationship between Paul and the church of Corinth was strained as they had been led to believe that Paul's testimony ministry was weak and it was not blessed of God. They saw his persecution and his life and said, there's no way God would be blessing this because life is about to be, you know, if God is blessing something, it ought to be all roses, right? And lollipops and pigtails and everything ought to be great and hunky-dory. But Paul's ministry was not marked by that. It was marked by persecution. It was marked by torture. It was marked by hunger and cold and none, no shelter. Certain teachers had wormed their way into the fellowship of believers there at that church And they were fermenting rebellion against Paul's teaching and fermenting bitterness against what they felt was Paul's interference with their lifestyles and with their choices and how they were living the Christian life. And hence why you see this letter, Paul says, I wrote this out of anguish and a heavy heart. The life you're living is not one that's Christ-like. We saw that in 1 Corinthians as we looked at that chapter or that book uh, last year. But today in this passage, there's some great news. 
as we finally see the Corinthians' response to that letter. The letter is lost to us. We really don't know what was put into that letter other than what we can capture from this return, this fourth letter. As he's responded to them, he's been sharing with them what's been going through his mind. But now he's now receiving word of what has happened now that they've received the letter and read it. The first thing we're going to see is that Paul, I'm going to give you about five, six observations, and then we're going to tackle what the, what the portion has for us today. But the first observation I want to give you as we look in, as we look, Paul repeats in chapter 7 now, verses 2 through 16, Paul is going to repeat his appeal from, verse thir- or from chapter 6, verse 13. Look at verses 2 of chapter 7. He says, Make room in your hearts for us, we have wronged no one, we have corrupted no one, we have not, or we have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and live together. An interesting phrase. What we see is Paul's plea in his defense, where he says, once again, make room in your hearts for us. As we saw, they were restricting their hearts. They weren't showing Paul much love. They weren't listening to his pleas and said, listen, I've done nothing to harm you. I've done nothing to wrong you. Why are you treating me such a way? You might remember Paul is their spiritual father. He gave birth to this congregation. He had planted his heart and his life into that ministry for for some time. And in his second visit, he sees that things are not going correctly And for the most part, he was really kind of sent out on the rails by the very church he birthed. Now, I don't know if you could understand that, but could you imagine, for those of you who might have children, going to visit your children, and they get so angry, they tell you to leave their house and never come back? How devastating might that be for someone else that you loved? If you've ever had a separation, you know what I'm talking about. You might be able to understand what's going on in Paul's heart. So Paul gives a plea in defense and says, Make room. I've done nothing against you. Paul has no desire to condemn them, but to correct their error. He says, I'm not writing condemn you, but I see there's things in your life that are not right, and they're harmful to you. You need to change them. And they take that and say, Look at this. Look at the who is this Paul who's trying to tell us to live? Look at his life. Is God's blessing on his? We have all the money and we have all the food and we're enjoying life. Who's he to tell us how to live? But Paul loves them, he tells them. They are his pride, his his boast, his joy, his children. And just like any parent or grandparent, I'm looking forward to that day, we boast and find joy and we find comfort in our children and the ones we love, do we not? And when there's conflict, oh, how devastating that is. And Paul uses an interesting phrase here where he says, I do not say this to condemn you, but he says this, to die together and to live together. Okay, this isn't a Bruce Willis movie here, Die Hard, Live Hard, or whatever those might be, but he uses the phrase and he twists around. Usually we say, we live together and we die together. That's usually how the phrase is, right? But in this case, he says, no, we die together and we live together. Interesting phrase. What it shows there is a Christian bond. 
What he's been reminding them with the ministry of the new covenant, the ministry of reconciliation, is remember you might he said, we die in Christ and we are a new creation. So Paul is saying it's not that our bond is that we live together and we die, but no, that we've died in Christ and now we can live together. As he says, we are a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And if you've died in Christ, we should now live together. There's a bond that cannot be broken. So an interesting phrase. So even for you and I, if you're here this morning and you profess Christ, there's been a time when you've repented from dead works and you've turned and put your trust in the works of Christ and you recognize that you can now be made right with God because of what Christ has done for you on your behalf. You today have died. And if you've done that, our bond is actually stronger than the bond of blood or the bond of employment or you know, collegiate type things and, and sports. We have a bond where the Bible says that we cannot be snatched away. We're a body of believers. And Paul is reminding them and saying, we've died together, now we live together, we need to live differently. The second is in verse 4, the second observation I want to point out is Paul's boldness. He has boldness. I wish, You know, I, I pray for that type of boldness. But for him, his boldness towards the Corinthians brings joy. In other words, to write that letter to, to them took, you know, took some boldness. It took some strength of character. For most of us, if we would have been you know, taken off the, the rails and, and said, get out of here, there's nothing that we want, we don't desire you, for most of us, what would we do? Wash our hands and walk away. Have we never ever done that? There comes to a time that sometimes we do that. For Paul says, no, there's a boldness. I'm trying to bring you joy. Verse 4, he says, I'm acting with great boldness towards you. I've wrote to you. I'm bringing these things up because I need to. He says, I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort in all of our afflictions. I am overjoyed with, with or overflowing, excuse me, with joy. Now, that's a weird statement to say in the midst of conflict. But what Paul is realizing is that his boldness towards them is bringing joy to him. It's bringing comfort. Why? Because he knows that it's the right thing to do. In other words, sometimes Paul is saying here, we must confront sin regardless of the circumstances. Regardless of the consequences, we need to confront uh, sin. We need to confront error. He says, you should have brought me joy in chapter 2. We just read that a moment ago. But now they are finally to begin to bring him his joy as he's about to hear the response from his letter. And that's where we come to the third point in verses 5 through 7, where Paul's or Titus's arrival comforts Paul in his affliction. Look at this, verse 5. For he says, For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and Fear within. Now take your Bibles real quick. Now you've got that. Turn back real quickly to chapter 2 once again. And I want you to go for verse 12 because verse 5 here is picking up from chapter 2, verses 12 through 13. It says, we bring that in mind. 
let's look what's happening here to Paul. Paul writes, When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though there was a door, uh, excuse me, there was a door open for me in, for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. Just to remind you, as we saw this probably last month or so, is that Paul has been saying, I got ran out by you. There's a conflict, and he says, I wrote a letter to you, this third letter that we do not, we do not have. He says, I write this letter, and we see that it's, a, it's kind of a, a very bold, very um, uh, correcting letter to them. And as he sends Titus with it, he's, he's supposed to visit, or he, Titus is supposed to give it to them, and then meet Paul there at, in Macedonia. But we see that, Paul says, or in Troas, but he's not there. So he moves to Macedonia. Titus isn't there. And you might remember that we looked at it, and you could just imagine Paul's mind going, what's going on? Has something happened to Titus? Did they not receive the letter? Is, is Titus not afraid to show me what, what happened? And so in there we see that's where we come here now as we turn back to, to chapter 7, verse 5, where he says, when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. Remember, he could not even preach the gospel. But we were afflicted every turn, fighting without and fear within. He's letting them into his mind. He's telling the Corinthians, while I was waiting for your response from Titus, my soul was in turmoil. Verse 6, but God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus. Titus finally arrives and Paul finds joy in seeing his brother in Christ. In verse 7, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, and so I rejoice still the more. We see a great glimpse here of Paul, I can imagine. Here he is in Macedonia. His heart is just torn for his children. His heart is just weary for his friend. Come, Titus, come. I need to hear what's going on at the church of Corinth. Lord, get Titus here safely. His travel could be a very dangerous time in that time of history. And you can almost imagine the time where Titus is finally coming down the road and Paul sees him and probably runs up and just gives him a bear hug. And, and then they come in and they sit down and Titus begins to tell them what's going on. And first Paul says, man, I'm so glad, Titus, you made it. Were you able to get to Corinth? Yes. Were you, were you able to give them the letter and read it? Yes. Oh, I'm so glad you made it back. But then you can imagine, here's the time now that Paul is unsure of. Well, Titus... What happened? Did they read the letter? Yeah. Did you read it to him? Yeah. Well, how did they respond? And you can imagine. I don't know if you've been there. Well, he probably had a pit in his stomach. But the wonderful thing here is Titus begins to tell him, Paul, it's okay. Let me tell you, they responded so well. As I read them a letter, yes, it was difficult. Yes, it was probably hard to hear. But listen, it says, he says, they told you, let me tell you, Paul, they long for you. They are so sad that you left so quickly. They want to resolve this conflict. They're mourning for you. They have a zeal for you. They pray for you. And Paul's heart 
says, I was comforted, not only by Titus, but the fact that you responded so well. God, who brings comfort to the downcast, brings comfort to Paul in this crisis that he's going through. And the great news is they love Paul. They responded well to a letter that was causing Paul so much anguish and so much heartbreak. In verse 8, we'll find the purpose and the effect of this tearful letter. For he says in verse 8, For even if I made you grieve, he's writing to the Corinthians, he says, when I heard that you responded so well, what a wonderful thing. But he says now, in re, in, in resp- here's what I was thinking. He says, for even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I re- did regret it. For I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces, and this is a phrase I want you to underline, verse, uh, verse 10. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness that, that this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you've proved yourself innocent in that matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore we are comforted. What Paul is remembering or realizing is that we must confess or we must confront sin regardless of the consequences. And I believe Paul, when he wrote that letter, probably one of the most difficult letters he ever had to write, and as he sent it off, it was probably one of the most difficult things for him to do. He was not quite sure how they would respond. They'd already ran him out of this church. How else would they respond? But he says, regardless of the consequences, regardless of whatever may happen, confronting sin, and you and I need to realize that. There will be times that in our marriages, that as parents, and in our relationship, and as a church, that we must confront sin and error. And let me tell you, not many of us enjoy conflict. There might be a few of you that like conflict. You guys need some help. But there's most of us, we try to run from conflict as much as possible. We like to, you know, kind of put it off. But as children of God, we can't. We've got to realize the harm and the destruction that comes from sin and error. This letter and the grief it brought to both parties was worth it. Paul is saying, you know, it doesn't matter. Whatever the anguish, whatever the heartache I had, I don't regret it. I do do regret that it might have hurt, but I'm glad I sent it. That's the phrase. I don't regret it, but I did. Sounds kind of like, what is he saying? He says, I know I had to send it. I wish it wouldn't have been so harsh. I wish it didn't have to be so harsh, but yet, at the same time, I recognize that it's important. The great news is that it brought both parties. It was worth the cost. Let me tell you, if there comes a time where you need to do so, 
There is no guarantee that when you confront conflict that it will be resolved the way that you want it to be. Unfortunately, in this world, marriage is dissolved. Families are broken. Relationships are torn apart. There's no guarantee that confronting it will cause the other one to, to, or for both of you, I should say, to repair that. However, it is still worth standing up for what's right and for seeking to reconcile in the way that God has called us to do. And the difference between the right way and the wrong way or what makes it respond well and to that which makes it respond negatively is really the type of grief. I've asked you to highlight or underline verse 10. For he says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So there are two different types of grief here. There is a godly grief that leads to life, and there's a worldly grief that produces death. In this case, they felt a godly grief. I want to take a few moments and give you an example of worldly grief. If you have your Bibles, turn to the last book of the Bible. And that's the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation, chapter 18, we get a very good glimpse of worldly grief. In chapter 18, John the Apostle is writing, and we're getting a glimpse into the future here. And we see that the, 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 the world system, what here is called Babylon, is fallen. And we see that all the nations have drunk the wine of the passions of her immorality. The kings have committed immorality with her. And we hear God's word saying, come on among your people. So we see a destruction. But in verse 9, we're going to see the world's reaction to God's judgment on that system. Look at verse 9. And the kings, well look at verse 8. For this reason her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will burn up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. Now let's see what God's judgment has brought. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. There will be a grief. But what type of grief? Is it going to be a godly grief that leads to repentance, that leads to life, or will it be a worldly grief that leads to destruction? We see this. I'm sorry, I'm not being able to see very well here. It says in verse uh, 10, And they will stand afar off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city of Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come, and the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her, since, and here's the grief, so because no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold, of silver, jewels, Pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented woods, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles. What is their kind of grief? The fact that no one buys their wares anymore. Are they mourning because of God and repentance? No. And that's the type of worldly grief in which it all becomes really fleshly. 
We also see Esau in Hebrews chapter 12, where he says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexual, immoral, or unholy like Esau. You might remember Esau, Jacob's son, or Isaac's son Esau and Jacob. Esau the oldest, Jacob was the youngest. Esau was a man of the, of the, uh, the earth. And in it he had, was so hungry one day after, uh, after hunting that he sold his birthright for, for a bowl of stew. His birthright was that which enabled him to have all that his fathers had. But he sold it. He says, to see that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing from his father, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Why? Because all he grieved was what he lost. He didn't see the error of his way or the sin of his desire, but he saw what he lost. We think the same way of Judas, the one who betrayed Jesus. We see after he betrayed Jesus, and the Bible tells us, after he realized what he did, he goes back and he gives the money back, right? But then he goes and commits suicide and takes his own life. Again, why? Because it was a worldly grief. It wasn't one that led to repentance, but one that says, oh, what have I done? You see, worldly grief leads to despair and the bitterness, and the paralysis, and self-pity. I think if we were to take those that are struggling with addictions, those that are medicating, self-medicating themselves into oblivion, into numbness, I think many times when you get to the source of it, you'll find a worldly grief. And it leads to there. But what you and I need is not a worldly grief, that leads to paralysis. It leads to self-pity. It doesn't lead to life. However, the Corinthians responded correctly. They had a sorrow, realized that it was wrong and they were sin, and they repented of their sin. And that repentance brought comfort to Paul, rejoicing that his children and him are now reconciled. The Corinthians' repentance was proof of their salvation, that they belonged to God, as he says, so that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Do you truly love me? Are you one of God's children? Then reconcile, repent, recognize the error of your way. The fifth observation I want to make is in the rest of verse 13 through 15, where Titus continues to give his reports. And then that report proves that Paul's boast, that there was a hope and a confidence that the Corinthians would spawn positively. And he says, And besides our own comfort, we we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit had been refreshed by you all. In other words, they responded to Titus positively. For whatever boast I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. In other words, Paul had told Titus, you need to go to Corinth. You need to give this letter. There are some good people there. There are some good, godly people that love him and want to serve him. And Titus is able to come and say, you were right, there was. There was a remnant there. 
But just as everything he goes on to say, we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. And I, and I bet that was part of Paul's mind that was pretty heavy. Remember, he had been run out of that church. So how does he respond? He writes by writing a very uh, tearful letter, which he says, probably stained with his tears, as he writes to correct their error. And says, what is wrong with you? Now, Paul is not able to go back because of the situation, and he recognizes that he does, that it may not work to the best. So he sends Titus. I'm pronouncing it wrong. Titus. And then he says, Titus, take this letter. And you can imagine, how will they respond to Titus? I am sending him into the mouth of lions here, the den of lions. Will they also treat him badly? Will they run him out of town? He's so overjoyed. I'm sure Titus was probably pretty nervous himself. Yeah, Paul says that there's a remnant here, but man, that didn't stop them from doing what they did. Oh, I pray they don't do that to me. But Paul says, I'm so glad to hear that you've responded in the right way. He was able to boast of their repentance, and the proof of repentance was the fact that they responded well to Titus. They received him. They were hospitable to them. They invited him to their home. They heard what he had to say, and maybe any corrections, any, any teaching that he had to give at that time. And we need to realize is that our repentance, it needs to be demonstrated by how we respond to that error. And then in verse 16, Paul's boldness towards the Corinthians once again brings joy. We see a kind of a, a bookends here where he says, just as he said in verse 4, I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. Why? Because we die together, we live together. We are all given as ambassadors of Christ to the ministry of reconciliation of the new covenant. Their repentance led to comfort and joy. Their repentance led to forgiveness and hospitality. Their repentance led to a changed mind and a behavior. And what I share with you today is as the church of Corinth went through a very difficult time with sin and error, in which there was a very deep conflict that just shook the, this, the very foundations of that church, we see that God blesses them by bringing them a godly sorrow. And what we find for us 2,000 years from that is that we too need to be a church that receives correction and discipline in the way that God has intended. Not only corporately, but individually. As we recognize that a conflict between just several members in a church, especially maybe even a church of this size, can do much damage. And God has called us to have a, a godly sorrow that leads not to self-pity, not to paralysis, not to despair or bitterness, but one that leads us to repentance. Now usually when you and I think of repentance, we think of repentance as something that just happens when we get saved. And that's true. We need to repent of dead works and turn and put our trust in Christ. But what Paul is saying is repentance here is an ongoing condition. It's a heart set. It's a heart attitude. 
for you and I today, you and I need to understand the importance. It's a spiritual discipline. It is something that God has called us to do. And I want to take just the, these last few moments to share with you, coming out of Psalm 51, what repentance is. If you're taking notes, I just want to give you a quick definition. It's by Wayne Grumman. I think it's a good definition. One, you could say it's just a changed behavior or a changed mind. But he writes that repentance is a heartfelt sorrow for sin. In other words, it's not a sorry. It's not, oh, yeah, I'm so, I'm, it's too bad. I, I wish I wouldn't have done that. But it's a heartfelt sorrow for sin. It's a renouncing of that sin and a sincere commitment to forsake it and walk in obedience to Christ. In other words, here's something about it that says it's not just a changed mind, but it's a changed behavior. Just as in Matthew chapter 3, verses 7 through 10, John the Baptist, as he was preaching, preparing the way for Jesus, he talks to the Pharisees, he says, You, you brood of vipers, you wicked generation, Bear fruit in with your repentance. If you truly have a godly sorrow, then you must bear fruit. Now praise God the Corinthians did. They were a very carnal, very fleshly church. There are some elements in that church that were very damaging and very uh, damaging to the testimony and to the ministry that Christ had gave them. But praise God there was repentance. And so with that, we need to recognize that Christ has called us to live a life of repentance. And that repentance is shown by a changed mind and a changed behavior. And what I'd like to do real quickly is I want to give you five marks of repentance. How do you know what repentance is? How do you know if it's just worldly grief and godly grief? And I'll have to tell you, if we're honest... Sometimes we've been more godly grief than than godly grief. Any of you else, you don't have to raise your hand or tell me, but do you challenge that yourself? Do you struggle with that sometimes? Am I truly repenting or am I just sorry for what I did? The Bible calls us to a godly sorrow. So here's five ways that you can mark whether or not you have true repentance. The first one is true repentance begins with a knowledge of sin. True repentance begins with a knowledge of sin. So you can just say, it's a knowledge of sin. You're taking notes. True repentance begins with a knowledge of sin. We see that in Psalms 51. If you want to take your Bible to Psalms 51 or open up your scripture reading, song and scripture, you'll see those verses very quickly. True repentance begins with the knowledge of sin. As David says, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. I recognize that I have sinned, and I understand what that sin is. We also see that true repentance produces sorrow for sin. Look at in Psalms 51, look at the first two verses. As he says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgression, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. Not only does it give us a knowledge of our sin, but there's a sorrow. We see it for what it is. It brings something in our heart that just tears at us. Worldly grief is going to be one that just brings into what I lost or what might be the punishment. 
But a sorrow of grief is a sorrow that comes in the heart and says, Lord, just wash me, clean me. Thirdly, true repentance produces confession of sin. That's the third mark. Confession of sin. Look at verse 4 of Psalms 51. He says, against you, and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. In other words, it's not one that makes confession. David doesn't say, listen, Nathan, when Nathan came to him and said, you've done wrong, he doesn't say, well, listen, she should not have been bathing naked up on the, on the roof. She shouldn't be doing that. And you know what? She shouldn't have came to me when I called her. You know, I'm the king. I know I have the power of life or death. But you know what? It's really not my fault. Or, hey, you know what? I'm the king. I can do whatever I want. He recognizes that even though his sin was against, he sinned against Bathsheba by not protecting her. He killed her husband. He recognizes that sin at its most intimate level is a sin of rebellion against God. You and I need to realize that. Sorrow, worldly sorrow, is one in which I wish I wouldn't have hurt that person or I wish I wouldn't have done that to myself. Now I feel bad for me. But a godly sorrow is one that recognizes what sin is. It confesses it. It agrees with it. Confession just means I agree with God. For most of us, we don't agree with God on our sin. We try to justify it. We try to talk our way out of it. But David recognized that I, I, I deserve God's judgment. The fourth mark of repentance, it produces a breaking off from sin. Verse 10, he says, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. In other words, God, change my desires. Change the things that I crave. Lord, help me with these these struggles that I have. Give me a different heart, Father. Change them within me. And oh, how he would do that, I pray. There are many times we may have to struggle with that sin for our whole lives, but yet our prayer should echo that of David, in which we recognize that we need to fight sin. We cannot uh, afford to, to live in sin or to enjoy sin or use sin as our way to to comfort ourselves in our difficult times. Then the fifth is true repentance produces a deep hatred for sin. Not only have a knowledge of sin or a sorrow for sin, a confession of sin and breaking off, but also a deep hatred. Look at verses 13 and 14. He says, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltlessness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. For you and I, for most of us, what we need to get to the point, we need to love God's righteousness and love God's word and be satisfied in God's promises more than we are than the things of the world. For that's what sin is. When you fall to sin, what you're saying is, I am more satisfied with this sin than I am with God's gift. That's what it is. When a man struggles with porn, a married man, he's saying, I'm more satisfied in this image than I am with my wife. 
when you're saying that you're struggling with drinking, you're saying, I'd rather have drunkenness than be sober and be with the Holy Spirit. That's what sin is. It's saying, I'd rather be satisfied in the things of the world than in the promises of God. We need to see sin for what it is. Before we go and end with repentance, you and I need to understand that repentance is not something that you and I can conjure up in ourselves. Esau could not find it, even though he sought it with tears. Judas could not find it, even though he gave back the blood money and says, I want nothing to do with this. Repentance is actually like faith, a gift from God. 2 Timothy, write this down so you can look at it later or you can turn to it real quickly. 2 Timothy chapter 2. We'll just turn to it real quick. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Second Timothy chapter 2, 24 through 26. Paul is writing to his son, spiritual son, Timothy. And he says, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Look at this last part of this verse of 25. That God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of truth, that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of devil after being captured by him to do his will. So where does repentance come from? From God. Pray that God may give you that godly sorrow. I know that's my prayer when I'm struggling. And when I fail, Lord, give me that repentance, Father. Give me a godly sorrow. Help me to see sin for what it is. Help me not to desire sin. Help me to fight that sin. In Acts chapter 11, verse 18, we see the same thing when when Paul goes back to the church of Jerusalem and reports back to the Jews about the conversion of Cornelius, who was a Gentile. Until that time, only the church has only been Jewish. But Paul says, he tells them, this is what God has done. Listen to the re- refrain from the Jewish leadership. And when they heard these things, that God had given the, the Gentile salvation, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. So I implore you today, would you would join me in calling out for that repentance? I pray that you would experience the sorrow, the godly sorrow that leads to life. Leave away the worldly grief. It'll lead you nowhere but shame, guilt, despair. If I could get you to do anything this morning, I pray that you would leave here and say, Lord, I pray that you give me the godly sorrow that leads to repentance. Let me see the joy in your grace when I truly see sin for what it is. J.C. Rao writes this, and I would end. He says, Bringing forth fruits worthy of, a pr- of repentance is a truth which should always aco- uh, occupy a prominent place in our Christianity. It can never be impressed on our minds too strongly the need for repentance. That religious talking and profession are utterly worthless without religious doing and practice. 
It is vain to say with our lips that we repent if we do not at the same time repent in our lives. It is more than vain. It will gradually gradually sear our conscience and harden our hearts. And that's Paul's worry. I think he was concerned that they had hardened their hearts and seared their conscience. And as your pastor, I pray that we not do that ourselves. Be warned, do not let that happen to your hearts. To say that we are sorry for our sin is mere hypocrisy unless we show that we are really sorry for them by giving them up. Doing is the very life of repentance. I pray today that as we hear the word of God, that you and I will join with the hearts of the Corinthians in repenting with godly sorrow, for it leads to life. May God be glorified as we repent of our sin, forsake our sin, and please God with our hearts. Father, I pray uh, for us this morning. I think this is a message that we need from time to time. For many times our sin, which we will struggle with each and every day, there are many of us here that probably have multiple failures, and we struggle with it. And maybe we're struggling the fact that we have worldly grief and the fact that it's not really godly grief. I pray that you would just pour out your spirit that will give us the repentance that leads to life. And Lord, may we just wallow and, 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 and drown ourselves in that grace and in your kindness. And may your repentance, Lord, lead us to live a life that's pleasing to you. Give us the strength to follow through and produce the fruits of repentance. In the name of your Son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.